Let's get to it. The Graveyard Book, Chapter 3, The Hounds of God. He's kind of crazy. She's a little insane. Keeping Kenny G really messes with his... Absolutely. No idea why, um, what any of this has to do with the original theme. I'm not even sure why we're not reading the original The Silver Linings Playbook. Anyway, here we are. Uh, We are on Chapter 3 of The Graveyard Book by Neil Gaiman, The Hounds of God. One grave in every graveyard belongs to the ghouls. Wander any graveyard long enough and you will find it. Water stained and bulging with cracked or broken stone, scraggly grass or ranked weeds around it, and feeling when you reach it of abandonment. It may be colder than the other gravestones too, and the name on the stone is all too often impossible to read. If there is a statue on the grave, it will be headless or scabbed with fungus and lichens as to look like a fungus itself. If one grave in a graveyard looks like a target for petty vandals, that is the ghoul gate. If the grave makes you feel you want to be somewhere else, that is the ghoul gate. There was one in Bod's graveyard. There is one in every graveyard. Silas was leaving. Bod had been upset by this when he had first learned about it. He was no longer upset. He was furious. But why? said Bod. I told you. I need to obtain some information. In order to do that, I have to travel. To travel, I must leave here. We have already been over this. What's so important that you have to go away? Bod's six-year-old mind tried to imagine something that could make Silas want to leave him and failed. It's not fair. His guardian was unperturbed. It is neither fair nor unfair, nobody Owens. It is, simply is. Bod was not impressed. You're meant to look after me, you said. As your guardian, I have the responsibility for you, yes. Fortunately, I'm not the only individual in the world willing to take on this responsibility. Where are you going anyway? Out, away. There are things I need to uncover that I cannot uncover here. Bod snorted and walked off, kicking an imaginary stone. On the northwest side of the graveyard, things had become overgrown and tangled, far beyond the ability of the groundsmen or the friends of the graveyard to tame. He had ambled over there and woke a family of Victorian children who all died before their tenth birthdays, and they played at hide-and-go-seek in the moonlight in the ivy-twinged jungle. Bod tried to pretend that Silas was not leaving, that nothing was going to change, But when the game was over and he ran back to the old chapel, he saw two things that changed his mind. The first thing he saw was a big bag. It was, Bod knew the moment he laid his eyes on it, Silas's bag. It was at least a hundred and fifty years old, a thing of beauty, black leather with brass fittings and a black handle, the kind of bag a Victorian doctor or undertaker might have carried, containing every implement that might have been needed. Bod had never seen Silas's bag before. He had not even known Silas had a bag, but it was the sort of bag that could only belong to Silas. Bod tried to peek inside, but it was closed with a large brass pad lock. It was too heavy for him to lift. That was the first thing. The second thing was sitting on the bench by the chapel. Bod, said Silas, this is Miss Lampescue. Miss Lampescue is not pretty. Her face was pinched and her expression was disapproving. Her hair was gray, although her face seemed too young for the gray hair. Her front teeth were slightly crooked. 
She wore a bulky Macintosh and a man's tie around her neck. How do you do, Miss Lampescu? said Bod. Miss Lampescu said nothing. She sniffed, then she looked at Silas, and said, So, this is the boy. She got up from her seat and walked all around Bod, nostrils flared as she was sniffing him. When she had made complete circuit, she said, You will report to me on waking and before you go to sleep. I have rented a room in a house over there. She pointed to a roof just visible from where they stood. However, I shall spend my time in this graveyard. I am here as a historian, researching the history of old graves. You understand, boy? Da? Bod? Said Bod. It's Bod, not boy. Short for nobody, she said. A foolish name. Also, Bod is a pet name, a nickname. I do not approve. I will call you Boy. You will call me Miss Lumpuscue. And Bod looked up at Silas, pleading, but there was no sympathy on Silas's face. He picked up his bag and said, You will be in good hands with Miss Lumpuscue. Bod, I am sure that the two of you will get on. We won't said Bod. She's horrible. That, said Silas, was very rude thing to say. I think you should apologize, don't you? Bod didn't, but Silas was looking at him, and he was carrying his black bag and about to leave for no one knew how long. He said, I'm sorry, Miss Lumpscue. At first, he said nothing in reply. She merely sniffed. Then she said, I have come a long way to look after you, boy. I hope you're worth it. Bod could not imagine hugging Silas, so he held out his hand and Silas bent over and gently shook it, engulfing Bod's small grubby hand with his huge pale one. Then, lifting his black leather bag as if it were weightless, he walked down the path and out of the graveyard. Bod told his parents about it. Silas is gone, he said. He'll be back said Miss Rowans cheerfully. Don't you worry your head about that bod like a bad penny, as they say. Miss Owens said, Back when you were born, he promised us that if he had to leave, he would find someone else to bring you food and keep an eye on you, and he has. He's dependable. Silas had brought for bod food, true, and left it in the crypt each night for him to eat. But this was as far as Bod was concerned, the least of the things that Silas did for him. He gave advice, cool, sensible, and unfailingly correct. He knew more than the graveyard folks did, for his nightly excursions into the world meant that he was able to describe a world that was current, not hundreds of years old and out of date. He was unflappable and reliable, and had been out there every night of Bod's life. So the idea of the little chapel without its only inhabitant was one that Bod found difficult to conceive of. Most of all, he made Bod feel safe. Miss Lumpuscue also saw her job as more than bringing Bod food. She did that, too. What is that? asked Bod, horrified. Good food, said Miss Lumpuscue. They were in the crypt. She had put two plastic containers on the top table and opened the lids. She pointed to the first. It's... Is beetroot barley stew soup, 
She pointed to the second. Is salad. Now you eat both. I make them for you. Bod stared up at her to see if this was a joke. Food from Silas mostly came in packets, purchased from the kind of places that sold food late at night and asked no questions. No one had ever brought him food in a plastic container with a lid before. It smells horrible, he said. If you do not eat the stew soup soon, she said, it will be more horrible. It will be cold. Now eat. Bod was hungry. He took a plastic spoon, dipped it in the purple-red stew, and he ate it. The food was slimy and unfamiliar, but he kept it down. Now the salad, said Miss Lumpescue, and she unpopped the top of the second container. It consisted of large lumps of raw onions, beetroots, and tomatoes, all in a thick, vinegary dressing. Bod put a lump of beetroot into his mouth and started to chew. He could feel the saliva gathering and realized that if he swallowed, he would throw it back up. He said, I can't eat this. He is good for you. I'll be sick. They stared at each other, the small boy with his tussled, mousy hair, the pinched pale woman with not a sliver of hair, not a sliver out of place. Miss Lumpescue said, You eat one more piece. I can't. You eat one more piece now, or you stay here until you have eaten it all. Bod picked out a piece of vinegary tomato, chewed it, and choked it down. Miss Lumpescu put the top down on the container and replaced them in the plastic shopping bag. She said, Now, lessons. It was high summer. It would not get fully dark until almost midnight. There was no lessons in high summer. The time that Bod spent awake, he spent in an endless warm twilight in which he would play or explore or climb. Lessons, he said. Your guardian felt it would be good for me to teach you things. I have a teacher's. Letitia Barrows teaches me writing and words, and Mr. Pennyworth teaches me his complete educational system for young gentlemen and additional materials for those post-mortem. I do geography and everything. I don't need more lessons. You know everything then, boy. Six years old, and already you know everything. I do not say that. Miss Lumpuscue folded her arms. Tell me about ghouls, she said. Bod tried to remember what Silas had told him about ghouls over the years. Keep away from them, he said. And that is all you know. Da, why do you keep away from them? Where do they come from? Where do they go? Why do you not stand near a ghoul gate, eh, boy? Bod shrugged and shook his head. Name the different kinds of people, said Miss Lumpescue. Now, Bod thought for a moment. The living, he said. Uh, the dead? Uh, he stopped then. Cats? He offered uncertainly. You are ignorant, boy, said Miss Lumpescue. This is bad. And you are content to be ignorant, which is worse. Repeat after me. There are the living and the dead. There are day folk and night folk. There are ghouls and mist walkers. There are high hunters and the hounds of God. Also, there are solitary types. What are you? asked Bod. I, she said sternly, am Miss Lumpescue. And what's Silas? She hesitated. Then she said, 
he is a solitary type. Bot endured the lesson. When Silas taught him things, it was interesting. Much of the time, Bod didn't realize that he had been taught anything at all. Miss Lumpuscue taught him lists, and Bod could not see the point to it. He sat in the crypt, aching to be out in the summer twilight, under the ghost moon. When the lesson was over, in the foulest of moods, he fled. He looked for playmates, but found no one, and saw nothing but a large gray dog which prowled the gravestones, always keeping its distance from him, slipping between gravestones and through shadows. The week got worse. Miss Lumpuscue continued to bring Bod things she had cooked for him. Dumplings swimming in lard, thick reddish-purple soup with a lump of sour cream in it, small cold-boiled potatoes, cold garlic-heavy sausage, hard-boiled eggs in a gray, unappetizing liquid. He ate as little as he could get away with. The lessons continued. For two days she taught him nothing but ways to call for help in every language in the world, and she would wrap his knuckles with her pen if he slipped up and forgot. By the third day, she was firing them at him. French. Oscure. Morse code. SOS. Three short dots, three long ones, three short ones again. Night gone. This is stupid. I don't remember what a night gaunt is. They have hairless wings and they fly low and fast. They do not visit this world, but they fly the red skies above the road to Golium. <clears throat> I'm never going to need to know this. Her mouth pinched in tighter. All she said was, Night gaunt. Bod made the noise in the back of his throat that she had taught him. A guttural cry like an eagle calls. She sniffed. Adequate, she said. Bod could not wait until the day that Silas would return. He said, There's a big gray dog in the graveyard sometimes. It came when you did. Is it your dog? Miss Lumpuscue straightened her tie. No, she said. Are we finished? For today, you will read the list I give you tonight and remember them for tomorrow. The list was printed in pale purple ink on white paper and they smelled odd. Bod took the new list up onto the side of the hill and tried to read the words, but his attention kept sliding off it. Eventually, he folded it up and placed it beneath a stone. No one would play with him that night. No one wanted to play or to talk or to run the climb beneath the huge summer moon. He went down to the Owens' tombs to complain to his parents, but Mrs. Owens would not hear a word said against Miss Lumpuscue on... As far as Bod was concerned, the unfair grounds that Silas had chosen her, while Miss Owens simply shrugged and started telling Bod about his days as a young apprentice cabinet maker and how much he would have loved to have learned about all the useful things that Bod was learning, which was, as far as Bod was concerned, even worse. Aren't you meant to be studying anyway? Mrs. Owens, and Bod squeezed his fists together and said, Nothing. He stomped off into the graveyard, feeling unloved and unappreciated. Bod brooded on the injustice of it all and wandered through the graveyard, kicking at stones. He spotted the dark, gray dog and called up to see if it would come over and play with him, but it kept its distance. And Bod, frustrated, 
threw a clump of mud towards it, which broke on a nearby gravestone and scattered earth everywhere. The big dog gazed at Bod reproachfully, then stepped way into the shadows and was gone. The boy walked back down the southwest side of the hill, avoiding the old chapel. He didn't want to see the place that Silas wasn't. Bod stopped beside a grave that looked the way he felt. It was beneath an oak that had once been struck by lightning, and now was just a black trunk, like a sharp talon, coming out of the hill. The grave itself was water-stained and cracked, and above it was a memorial stone on which the headless angel hung its robes, looking like a huge and ugly tree fungus. Bod sat down on the clump of grass and felt sorry for himself and hated everybody. He even hated Silas for going away and leaving him. Then he closed his eyes and curled into a ball on the grass and drifted into the dreamless sleep. Down the street and up the hill came the Duke of Westminster, the Honorable Archibald Fitzhugh, and the Bishop of Bath and Wells, slipping and bounding from shadow to shadow, lean and leathery, all sinew and cartilage, wearing raggedy clothes, all a tatter, and they bounded and lopped and skulked, leapfrogging over dustbins, keeping to the dark side of the hedges. They were small, like full-sized people who had shrunk into the sun. They spoke to each other in undertones, saying things like, If your grace has any more blooming idea of where we is than us do, I'd be grateful if he'd say so. Otherwise, he should keep his big old hole shut and all I'm saying, your worship, is that I know there's a graveyard near to here. I can smell it. And if you can smell it, then I should be able to smell it, because I've got a better nose than you have, your grace. All this as they dodged and wove their way through the suburban gardens. They avoided one garden. Psst, hissed the Honorable Archibald Fitzhugh. Dogs. And ran along the top of the garden wall, scampering over it like rats the size of children, down into the high street and up the road to the top of the hill. And then they were at the graveyard wall, and they went up it like squirrels up a tree, and they sniffed the air. Where, dog? said the Duke of Westminster. Where? I don't know. Somewhere around here. Doesn't smell like a proper dog anyway, said the Bishop of Bath and Wells. Somebody couldn't smell his graveyard neither, said the Honorable Archibald Fitzhugh. Remember, it's just a dog. The three of them leapt down from the wall to the ground, and they ran using their arms as much as their legs to propel themselves through the graveyard to the ghoul gate by the lightning tree. And beside the gate in the moonlight, they paused. What? This win it at home, then, asked the Bishop of Bath and Wells. Lume, said the Duke of Westminster. Bod woke then. The three faces staring into his could have been those mummified humans, fleshless and dried, but their features were mobile and interested, mouths that grinned to reveal sharp, stained teeth, bright, beady eyes, clawed fingers that moved and tapped. Who are you? Bod asked. We? said one of the creatures. They were, Bod realized, only a little bigger than he was. It was most important folk we is. This is where the Duke of Westminster. The biggest of the creatures gave a bow, saying, Charmed, I'm sure. And this is the Bishop of Bath and Wells. 
The creature, which grinned, sharp teeth, and let a pointed tongue of improbable length wiggle between them, did not look like Bod's idea of a bishop. Its skin was piebald, and it was a large spot across one eye, making it almost piratical. And I've the honor to be the other honorable Archibald Fitzhugh at your service. The three creatures bowed it as one. The Bishop of Bath and Wales said, Now, me lad, what's your story, eh? And don't tell any porkies, remember, as you know you're talking to a bishop. You tell him, your worship, said the other two. So Bod told them. He told them how no one liked him or wanted to play with him, how no one appreciated him or cared, and how even his guardian had abandoned him. Blow me down, said the Duke of Westminster, scratching his nose, little dried up thing that was mostly nostrils. What you need is to go somewhere the people will appreciate you. There isn't anywhere, said Bod, and I'm not allowed out of the graveyard. You need an old friend of the world of friends and playfellows, said the Bishop of Bath and Wales, wiggling his long tongue. A city of delights, of fun, of magic, where you would be appreciated, not ignored. Bod said, The lady who's looking after me, she makes horrible food. Hard-boiled eggs, soup, and things. Food, said the Honorable Archibald Fitzhugh. Where were we going to the foods the best in the world? Make me tum rumble and me mouth water, just thinking about it. Can I come with you? said Bod. Come with us, said the Duke of Westminster. He sounded shocked. Don't be like that, your grace, said the Bishop of Bath and Wales. Have a blinking night. Look at the little mite. Hasn't had a decent meal in I don't know how long. I vote to take him, said Honorable Archibald Fitzhugh. That's a good grub back at our place. He patted his stomach to show just how good the food was. So you give, you game for adventure, said the Duke of Westminster, went over by the novel idea. Or do you want to waste the rest of your life here, said the bony fingers he indicated the graveyard in the light. Bod thought about Miss Lumpuscu and her awful food and her lists and, he pin, and her pinched mouth. I'm game he said. His three new friends might have been his size, but they were far stronger than any child, and Bod found himself picked up by the Bishop of Bath and Wells, and held high above the creature's head, while the Duke of Westminster grabbed a handful of mangy-looking grass, shouted what sounded like and pulled the stone slab that covered the grave, swung open like a trap door, revealing a dark beneath. Quick now, said the Duke and the Bishop of Bath and Wells, tossed Bod into the dark opening. They left, leapt in after him, followed by the Honorable Archibald Fitzhugh, and then, with one agile bound by the Duke of Westminster, who as soon as he was inside, called out, Way Carados, to close the ghoul gate, and the stone crashed down above them. Bod fell tumbling through the darkness like a lump of marble, too startled to be scared, wondering how deep the hole beneath the grave could possibly be. Then, two strong hands caught him beneath the armpits, and he found himself swinging forward through the pitch blackness. 
Bod had not experienced total darkness for many years. In the graveyard, he saw as the Dead Sea, and no tomb or grave or crypt was truly dark to him. Now he was in utter darkness, feeling himself being pitched forward in a sequence of jerks and rushes. The wind rushed past him. It was frightening, but it was exhilarating. And then there was light, and everything changed. The sky was red, but not the warm red of a sunset. This was an angry, glowing red, the color of an infected wound. The sun was small and seemed like it was old and distant. The air was cold, and they were descending a wall. Tombstones and statues jutted out of the sides of the wall as if a huge graveyard had been upended, and like three wizened chimpanzees in tattered black suits that did up in the back of the Duke of Westminster, the Bishop of Bath and Wells, and the Honorable Archibald Fitzhugh were swinging from statue to stone, dangling bod between them as they were tossing him from one to another, never missing him, always catching him with ease without even looking. Bod tried to look up to see the graves through which they had entered the strange world, but he could see nothing but headstones. He wondered if each of the graves they were swinging past was a door for the kind of people they were carrying him. Where are we going? he asked, but his voice was whipped away by the wind. They were faster and faster. Up ahead of them, Bod saw a statue swing up and another two creatures came catapulting out of it into the crimson-skied world just like the ones that carried Bod. One wore a raggedy silken gown that looked like it had been once white. The other wore a stained gray suit, too large for it, the sleeves of which were shredded into shadowy tatters. They spotted Bod and his three new friends and made for them dropping twenty feet with ease. The Duke of Westminster gave a guttural squawk and pretended to be scared, and Bod and the three of them swung down the wall of graves with the two new creatures in pursuit. None of them seemed to get tired or ran out of breath under the red sky with the burnt-out sun gazing down at them like a dead eye, but eventually they fetched up on the side of the huge statue of a creature whose whole face seemed to have become a fungoid growth. Bod found himself being introduced to the 33rd President of the United States and the Emperor of China. This is Miss Master Bod, said the Bishop of Athenwells. He's going to become one of us. He is in search of a good meal, said the Honorable Archibald Fitzhugh. Well, you're guaranteed fine dining when you become one of us, young lad, said the Emperor of China. Yep, said 33rd President of the United States. Bod said, I become one of you. You mean I'll turn into you? Smart as a whip, sharp as a tack. You'd have to get up pretty late at night to put anything past this lad, said the Bishop of Bath and Wells. Indeed, one of us, as strong, as fast, as unconquerable. Teeth so strong, they can crush any bone, and tongue sharp and long enough to lick the marrow from the deepest marrow bone of flesh fly, and flesh from a fat man's face, said the Emperor of China. 
able to slip from shadow to shadow, never seen, never suspected, free as air, fast as thought, cold as frost, hard as nails, dangerous as... as us, said the Duke of Westminster. Bod looked at the creatures. But what if I don't want to be one of you? He said. Don't want to be? Of, of course you want to be. What what could be finer? I don't think there's a soul in the universe. I doesn't want to be just like us. We've got the best city. Guleheim, said the 33rd president of the United States. The best life. The best food. Can you imagine? Interrupted the Bishop of Bath and Wells. How fine a drink of black ichor that collects in the leaden coffin can be, or how it feels to be important than kings and queens and presidents or prime ministers or heroes, or to be sure of it, it is the same way that people are more important than Brussels sprouts. Bod said, What? What are you people? Ghouls, said the Bishop of Bath and Wells. Bless me, somebody wasn't paying attention, was he? We are ghouls. Look. Below them, a whole troop of little creatures were bouncing and running, leaping, heading for the path below them, and before he could say another word, he was snatched up by a pair of bony hands and was flying through the air in a series of jumps and lurches as the creatures headed down to meet the others of their kind. The wall of graves was ending, and now there was a road, and nothing but a road, a much-trodden path across a barren plain a desert of rocks and bones that wound together a city high on a huge rock hill many miles away. Bod looked up at the city and was horrified. An emotion engulfed him that mingled repulsion and fear, disgust and loathing, all tinged with shock. Ghouls did not build. They are parasites, scavengers, eaters of carrion, the city they called Gulheim is something they found long ago, but did not make. No one knows if any human ever knew what kind of creature it was that made these buildings, who honeycombed the rock with tunnels and towers. But it is certain that no one but the ghoul folk could have wanted to stay there, or even to approach the place. Even from the path below Gulheim, even from miles away, Bod could see that all the angles were wrong, that the walls sloped crazily, that it was every nightmare he had ever endured made into a place, like a huge mat of mouth of jutted teeth. It was a city that had been built just to be abandoned, in which all the fears and madness and revulsion of the creatures who built it were made into stone. The ghoul folk had found it, and delighted in it, and called it home. Ghouls move fast. They swarm along the paths through the desert more swiftly than a vulture flies, and Bod was carried along with them, held high overhead by a pair of strong ghoul arms, tossed from one to another, feeling sick, feeling dread and dismay, feeling stupid. Above them, in the sour red sky, things were circling on huge black wings. Careful! said the Duke of Westminster. Tuck him away, don't. Want the night gaunt stealing him, bloody stealers. Yar, we hates stealers, 
shouted the Emperor of China. Night gaunts in the red skies above Guggenheim. Bod took a deep breath and shouted, just as Miss Lapiscu had taught him. He made a call like an eagle's cry in the back of his throat. One of the winged beasts dropped towards them, circled low, and Bod made the call again until it was stifled, stifled by the hand, hard hands clapping over his mouth. Good idea, calming him down, said the Archibald Fitzhugh. But trust me, they aren't edible until they've been rotting for at least a couple of weeks. And that just causes trouble. No love lost between our side and theirs, eh? The night gaunt rose again in the dry desert air to rejoin its fellows, and Bod felt all hope vanish. The ghoul sped on towards the city on the rocks, and Bod now flung unceremoniously over the stinking shoulder of the Duke of Westminster, was carried with them. The dead sun set, and two moons rose, one huge and pitted and white, which seemed as it rose to be taking up half the horizon, although it shrank as it ascended, and a smaller moon, the bluish-green color of veins of a mold in a cheese, and the arrival of the moon, was an occasion of celebration for the ghoul folk. They stopped marching and made a camp beside the roads. One of the new members of the band, Bod thought, it might have been the one that had been introduced as the famous writer Victor Hugo, produced a sack, which turned out to be filled with firewood. Several pieces, still with hinges or brass handles, attached along with a metal cigarette lighter, and soon made a fire around which all the ghoul folk sat and rested. They stared up at the greenish-blue moon and scuffled for the best place by the fire, insulting each other, sometimes clawing or biting. We'll sleep soon, then head off for Gulheim at the moon's set, said the Duke of Westminster. It's just another nine or ten hour run along the way. We should reach it by next moonrise. Then we'll have a party, celebrate you, being made into one of us. It doesn't hurt, said the Honorable Archibald Fitzhugh. Not so as you'd notice, and after, think how happy you'll be. They all started telling stories, then, of how fine and wonderful a thing it was to be a ghoul. Of all the things they had crunched up and swallowed down and with their powerful teeth. Impervious they were to disease or illness, said one of them. Why it doesn't matter what their dinners had died of if they could just chomp it down. They told of the place they had been, which mostly seemed to be catacombs and plague pits. Plague pits. It's good eating, said the Emperor of China, and everyone agreed. They told Bod how they had gotten their names, how he, in his term, once he had become a nameless ghoul, would be named, as they had been, after the main course of his first dinner. But I don't want to become one of you, said Bod. One way or another, said the Bishop of Bath and Wells, cheerily, you'll become one of us. The other way is messier, involves being digested, and you're not really around very long to enjoy it. But there's not a good thing to talk about, said the Emperor of China. Best to be a ghoul, we're afraid of nothing. And all the ghouls around the coffin would fire howled at this statement and growled and sang 
and exclaimed at how wise they were, and how mighty, and how fine it was to be scared of nothing. There was a noise then from the desert from far away, a distant howl, and the ghouls gibbered, and they huddled around the flame. What was that? asked Bod. The ghouls shook their head. Just something out there in the desert, whispered one of them. Quiet. It'll hear us. And all the ghouls were quiet for a bit until they forgot about the thing in the desert and began to sing ghoul songs filled with foul words and worse sentiments, the most popular of which were simply lists of which rotting body parts were to be eaten and in what order. I want to go home, said Bod, when the last of the bits of the song had been consumed. I don't want to be here. Don't take on so, said the Duke of Westminster. Why, you little coot, I promise you that as soon as you're one of us, you'll not even remember that you even had a home. I don't remember anything about the days before I was a ghoul, said the famous writer Victor Hugo. Nor I, said the Emperor of China proudly. Nope, said the 33rd President of the United States. You'll be one of the select band of the cleverest, strongest, bravest creatures ever bragged, the Bishop of Bath and Wells. Bod was unimpressed by the ghoul's bravery or their wisdom. They were strong, though, and inhumanly fast, and he was in the center of a troop of them. Making a break for it would have been impossible. They would be able to catch up with him before he could cover a dozen yards. Far off in the night, something howled once more, and the ghouls moved closer to the fire. Bod could hear them sniffling, cursing. He closed his eyes, miserable and homesick. He did not want to become one of the ghouls. He wondered how he would ever be able to sleep when he was this worried and hopeless, and then, almost to his surprise, for two or three hours, he slept. A noise awoke him. Upset, loud, close, it was someone saying, Well, where is he? He opened his eyes to see the Bishop of Bath and Wells shouting at the Emperor of China. It seemed that a couple of the members of the group had disappeared into the night, just vanished, and no one had an explanation. The rest of the ghouls were on edge. They picked up their camp quickly, and the 33rd President of the United States picked up Bod up and bundled him over his shoulder. The ghouls scrambled back down the rocky cliffs to the road beneath the sky of the color of bad blood, and they headed towards Gulheim. They seemed significantly less exuberant this morning. Now they seemed, at least to Bod, as he was bounced along, to be running away from something. Around midday, with the dead-eyed sun high covered overhead, the ghouls stopped and hurtled ahead of them, high in the sky, circling on the hot air currents where the night gaunts, dozens of them riding the thermals. The ghouls divided into two factions. There were those who felt that the vanishing of their friends was meaningless, and those who believed that something, probably the night gaunts, was out to get them. They came to no agreement except for a general agreement to arm themselves with rocks to throw at the night gaunts, should they descend, and they filled the pockets of their suits and robes with pebbles from the desert floor. Something howled, 
off in the desert to their left, and the ghouls eyed each other. It was louder than the night before, and closer. A deep, wolfish howl. Did you hear that? said the Lord Mayor of London. Nope, said the 33rd President of the United States. Me either, said the Honorable Archibald Fitzhugh. The howl came again. We got to go home, said the Duke of Westminster, hefting a large stone. The nightmare city of Gulheim sat on a high, rocky outcrop ahead of them. The creatures lopped down the road towards it. Night gaunt's coming, shouted the Bishop of Bath and Wells. Throw stones at the bleeders. Bod's view of things was upside down now, with the point bouncing up and down on the back of the 33rd President of the United States, gritty sand from the path blown up into his face. He heard cries like eagles, cries and once again, Bod called for help in night gaunt. No one tried to stop him this time, but he was not sure anyone could have heard him over the cries of the night gaunts or the oaths and the curses of the ghoul folk as they pitched and flung their stones into the air. Bod heard the howling again. Now it came from their right. There's dozens of the blooming blinkers, said the Duke of Westminster gloomily. The 33rd President of the United States handed Bod over to the famous writer Victor Hugo, who threw the boy into a sack and put it over his shoulder. Bod was just glad the sack smelled of nothing worse than dusty wood. They're retreating, shouted the ghoul. Let them go. Don't you worry, said a voice that sounded like to Bod, like the Bishop of Bath and Wells near the sack. There won't be any of this nonsense when you get to Gulheim. It's impenetrable. Is Gulheim? Bod could not tell if any of the ghouls had been killed or injured fighting the night gaunts. He suspected from the imprecations of the Bishop of Bath and Wells that several more of the ghouls might have run off. Quickly, shouted someone who was probably the Duke of Westminster, and the ghouls set off on a run. Bod in the sack was uncomfortable, being painfully slammed against the famous writer Victor Hugo's back and occasionally banged to the ground. To make his time in the sack even more uncomfortable, there were still several lumps of wood, not to mention sharp screws and nails in there with him, the final remnants of a coffin-based firewood, a screw that was just under the hand hinge dinged into him. Despite being jogged and jounced, jolted and jarred with every one of his captor's steps, Bod managed to grab the screw in his right hand. He felt the tip of it, sharp to the touch. He hoped deep inside that he pushed the screw into the fabric of the sack behind him, working the sharp end in, then pulling it back and making another hole a little way below the first. From behind... He could hear something howl once more, and it occurred to him that everything that could terrify the ghoul folk must itself be even more terrifying than he could imagine, and for a moment he stopped stabbing with the screw. What if he fell from the sack into the jaws of some evil beast? But at least if he died, thought Bod, he would have died as himself, with all his memories, knowing his parents were, who Silas was, even who Mrs. Lumpescue was. That was good. He attacked the sacking with his brass screw again, jabbing and pushing until he had made another hole in the fabric. 
Come on, lads, shouted the Bishop of Bath and Wales. Up the steps and then we're home, all safe in Gulheim. Hurry, your worship, called someone. Probably the Honorable Archibald Fitzhugh. Now the motion of his capture had changed. It was no longer a forward motion. Now it was the sequence of movements up and along. Bod pushed at the sagging with his hands, trying to make an eye hole. He looked out above the dreary red sky below. He could see the desert floor, but it was now hundreds of feet below him. There were steps stretching from out behind him. Made for giants and the ogre rock wall to the right. Gulheim, which Bod could not see from where he was, had to be above them. To his left was a sheer drop. He was going to have to fall straight down. He decided on to the steps. He would just hope that the ghouls wouldn't notice that he was making his break for it in their desperation to be home and safe. He saw night gaunts high in the red sky, hanging back, circling. He was pleased to see that there were no other ghouls behind him. The famous writer Victor Hugo was bringing up the rear, and no one was behind him to alert the ghouls to the hole that was growing in the sack, or to see Bod if he had fell out. But there was something else. Bod was bounced onto his side away from the hole, but he had seen something huge and gray on the steps beneath, pursuing them. He could hear an angry growl noise. Mr. Owens had an expression of two things he found equally unpleasant. I'm between the devil and the deep blue sea, he would say. Bod had wondered what this meant, having seen in his life in the graveyard neither the devil nor the deep blue sea. I'm in between the ghouls and the monsters, he thought. And as he thought it, sharp canine teeth caught at the sack, pulling at it until the fabric tore along the rips Bod had made. The boy tumbled down on the rock stairs, where a huge gray animal like a dog, but far larger, growled and drooled and stood over him, an animal with flaming eyes and white fangs and huge paws. It panted and it stared at Bod. Ahead of him, the ghouls had stopped. Bloody Nora, said the Duke of Westminster, that a hellhound's got the blinkin' boy. Let it have him, said the Emperor of China. Run. Yikes, said the 33rd President of the United States. The ghouls ran up the steps. Bod was now certain that the steps had been carved by giants, for each step was higher than he was, and they fled the ghouls, paused only to turn and make rude gestures at the beast and possibly at Bod. The beast stayed where it was, it's going to eat me, Bod thought bitterly. Smart Bod. And he thought of his home in the graveyard, and now he could no longer remember why he had ever left. Monster dog or no monster dog, he had to get back home once more. There were people waiting for him. He pushed past the beast, jumped down the next step four feet below, fell his height, landed on his ankle, which twisted underneath him painfully. And he dropped. Heavily on the rock. 
He could hear the beast running, jumping down towards him, and he tried to wriggle away to push himself up to his feet. His ankle was useless now, numb and in pain, and before he could stop himself, he fell again. He fell off the step, away from the rock wall, onto space, off the cliffside, where he dropped. A nightmarish tumble down distance that Bod could not even imagine. And as he fell, he was certain he heard a voice coming from the general direction of the gray beast, and it said in Miss Lumpuscue's voice, Oh, Bod. It was like every dream of falling off he had ever had, scared and frantic drop through space. As he headed towards the ground below, Bod felt as though his mind was only big enough for one huge thought, so that the big dog was actually Miss Lumpuscue, and I'm going to hit the rock floor and splat. Competed, competed in his head for occupation. Something wrapped itself around him, falling at the same speed he was falling, and then there was the loud flapping of leathery wings, and everything slowed. The ground no longer seemed to be heading towards him at the same speed. The wings flapped harder. They lifted slightly. And now, the only thought in Bod's head was, I'm flying. And he was. He turned his head. Above him was a dark brown head, perfectly bald, with deep eyes that looked as if they were polished slabs of black glass. Bod made the screeching noise that he that means help in Night God, and the Night God smiled and made a deep hooting noise in return. It seemed pleased. A swoop and a slow, they touched down on the desert floor with a thump. Bod tried to stand up and his ankle betrayed him once again sending him tumbling down into the sand. The wind was high, and the sharp desert sand blew hard, stinging Bod's skin. The night gaunt crouched beside him, its leathery wings folded on its back. Bod had grown up in the graveyard, and was used to imagine images of winged people, but the angels on the headstone looked nothing like this. And now, bounding towards them across the desert floor in the shadow of Gulheim, a huge gray beast like an enormous dog. The dog spoke in Miss Lipescu's voice. It said, This is the third time the night gaunts have saved your life, Bod. The first was when you called for help, and they heard. They got the message to tell me. Tell me where you were. The second was around the fire last night where you were asleep. They were circling in the darkness, and heard a couple of the ghouls say they were ill luck for them, and they should beat your brains in with a rock and put you somewhere they could find you again when they were properly rotted down, and then they would eat you. The night gods dealt with the matter silently. And now this. Miss Lumpuscue? The great dog-like head lowered toward him. And for one mad, fear-filled moment, he thought she was going to take a bite of him. But her tongue licked the side of his face affectionately. You hurt your ankle. Yes, I can't stand on it. Let's get you on to my back, said the huge gray beast. It was Miss Lumpuscue. She said something in the night gaunt screeching tongue, and it came over, held Bod up while he put his arms around Miss Lumpuscue's neck. Hold my fur, she said. Hold tight now, before we go. And she made a high screeching noise. What does that mean? Thank you, or goodbye, both. 
Bod screeched as best he could, and the night gaunt made an amused chuckle. Then it made a similar noise, and it spread its great leathery wings, and it ran into the desert wind, flapping hard, and the wind caught it and carried it aloft like a kite that had begun to fly. Now, said the beast that was Miss Lumpuscue, hold on tightly. She began to run. Are we going to the wall of the graves? To the ghoul gates? No. Those are for ghouls. I am a hound of God. I travel my own road into hell and out of it. And it seemed to Bod as if she ran even faster then. The huge moon rose across the small, mold-colored moon, and they were joined by a ruby-red moon, and the gray wolf ran at a steady lope beneath them across the desert of bones. They stopped by a broken clay building, like an enormous beehive built beside a small rill of water that came bubbling out of the desert rock, splashed down onto a tiny pool, and was gone again. And the gray wolf put her head down and drank, and Bod scooped water up in her hands, drinking the water in a dozen tiny gulps. This is the boundary, said the gray wolf that was Miss Lumpuscue, and Bod looked up. The three moons had gone. Now he could see the Milky Way, see it as he had never seen it before, a glimmering shroud across the arch of the sky. The sky was filled with stars. They're beautiful, said Bod. When we get you home, Miss Lumpuscue said, I teach you the name of the stars and their constellations. I'd like that, admitted Bod. Bod clambered onto her huge gray back once more, and he buried his face in her fur and held on tightly, and it seemed only moments later that he was being carried, awkwardly as a grown woman carries a six-year-old boy across the graveyard to the Owens' tomb. He's hurt his ankle, Miss Lumpuscue said. Poor little boy, said Mistress Owens, taking the boy from her and cradling him in her capable, if insubstantial arms. I can't say. I don't worry, for I did, but he's back now, and that's all that matters. And then he was perfectly comfortable, beneath the earth in a good place, with his head on his own pillow, and a gentle exhausted darkness took him. Bod's left ankle was swollen. Dr. Trefusis, 1870-1936, May, he wake to glory, inspected it, and pronounced it merely sprained. Miss Lumpuscue returned from a journey to the chemist with a high ankle bandage, and Josiah Worthington, Bart, who had been buried with his ebony walking cane instead of lean, lending it to Bod, who had too much fun leaning on the stick and pretending to be 100 years old. Bod limped up the hill and retrieved a folded piece of paper from beneath a stone. The Hound of God. It was printed in purple ink, and was the first item on a list. Those that men call werewolves or lycanthropes call themselves the hounds of God, as they claim their transformation is a gift from their creator, and they repay their gift with their tenacity, for they will pursue an evildoer to the very gates of hell. Bod nodded. Not just evildoers, he thought. He read the rest of the list, committing it to memory as best he could, then went down to the chapel where Miss Lumpuscue was waiting for him with a small meat pie and a huge bag of chips she had bought from a fish and chip shop at the bottom of the hill and another pile of purple-inked duplicated lists. The two of them 
shared the chips, and once or twice Miss Lumpuscue even smiled. Silas came back at the end of the month. He carried his big black bag in his left hand and held his right arm stiffly. But he was Silas, and Bod was happy to see him, and even happier when Silas gave him a present, a little model of the Golden Great Bridge in San Francisco. It was almost midnight, and it was still not fully dark. The three of them sat at the top of the hill with the lights of the city glimmering beneath them. I trust that all went well in my absence, said Silas. I learned a lot, said Bod, still holding his bridge. He pointed up to the night sky. That's Orion, the hunter, up there with his belt with three stars. That's Taurus, the bull. Very good, said Silas. And you, asked Bod. Did you learn anything while you were away? Oh, yes, said Silas. But he declined to elaborate. I also, said Miss Lumpuscue primarily, I also learned things. Good, said Silas. An owl hooted in the branches of an oak tree. You know, I heard rumors while I was away, said Silas, that some weeks ago... You both went somewhat further afield than I would have been able to follow. Normally, I would advise caution. But, unlike some, the ghoul folk have short memories. Bod said, It's okay. Miss Lumpuscue looked after me. I was never in danger. Miss Lumpuscue looked at Bod, and her eyes shone through. She looked at Silas. There were so many things to know, she said. Perhaps I come back next year in high summer, also, to teach the boy again. Silas looked at Miss Lumpuscue, and he raised an eyebrow, a fraction. Then he looked at Bod. I'd like that, said Bod. All right, that's the end of chapter three. Uh, We will conclude reading because i'm parched i probably messed up a bunch of the words all right we will see you guys down the road and excelsior